The Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences is proud to present the 24th Annual Dice Awards in a brand new format. Hosted by me, Khalif Adams, alongside Jessica Chobot and Greg Miller. And streamed by media partner IGN. Discover unique insights and conversations between our nominees. And find out who wins on April 22nd. To find out more information, head to www.interactive.org. Hi, everybody. This is Ted Price from Insomniac Games. On today's episode of The Game Maker's Notebook, I had a chance to catch up with a longtime friend of mine, Randy Pitchford, who's the founder and CEO of Gearbox. Because of the pandemic, we haven't seen each other for a long time, and it was fantastic to catch up in person. Randy took me on a fascinating journey through Gearbox's history. We talked about how Borderlands came to be and the lessons he and the team have learned along the way. We also dove into Gearbox's unique approach to publishing, and of course, we talked about magic. Please join me for a great chat with a true entertainer. Welcome to The Game Maker's Notebook, a podcast featuring a series of in-depth one-on-one conversations between game makers providing a thoughtful, intimate perspective on the business and craft of interactive entertainment. The Game Maker's Notebook is presented by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, a member-driven organization dedicated to the recognition and advancement of interactive entertainment. Randy, thank you very much for joining the show. Oh, I'm so happy to do it, Ted. I love the fact that you're doing this. This is really important, and I've been wanting, I've been hoping to have a chance to be invited on, and the fact that we can sit down in person, I think, is a miracle and really cool. So I'm exactly. glad to be here. Yeah, who would have said that a year ago? Right? I know, right? <laughs> it was it was almost exactly a year ago. In fact, I was in Los Angeles on March 8th of last year, and that was the last time I was out. And I performed, uh, I did magic at a, at a show on, in Hollywood called Scott and Harry's Booby Trap. And a friend of mine, we're, we're doing magic at the bar. That was a Wednesday night. And then, and there was another act in the show where these guys were spouting water fountains into each other's mouths back and forth. And I'm like, this act is never happening again. This act is dead forever. None of us will ever be comfortable watching it. And then, and then the next day when I got home, I, I'm like, I think, I think that's it. And then I gathered together my executive team and we, we decided to, to go work from home just instantaneously at Gearbox and we immediately migrated and that was it. And it's been literally a year. This is my first time out and it's pretty crazy. Well, for, for those listening, we're in Burbank right now. That's right. And, uh, and Randy flew out from Texas and it is, it is wonderful to see you because I think we usually see each other at the various shows. At the events, yeah. Uh, yeah. But what was also, speaking of magic, what was so cool, last year you put on the Peacock Magic Show. Oh, yeah. For lots of folks in the industry. Yes. And it was another way for all of us to sort of get together and yeah, see each other. Yeah, you know, that was a tradition at E3, uh, Christy and I, there's a there's a private theater in, in Los Angeles called um, the Brooklyn Theater, and we put on a variety show with some of our friends from live entertainment, and we share that with our friends from digital entertainment. And uh, we, you know, we a lot of people were just sad that wasn't happening because E three didn't happen last year. So was, you know what? Why don't, why don't we try a virtual one? And I, that might have been the first one you saw, a virtual one. You should come Once. to a, you should come to one of our live ones. They're incredible. Well, uh, I I will because <laughs> what you were able to do or what the magicians were able to do virtually still blew my mind. Oh, it's it's really fun stuff. Yeah, yeah. It, there's and I'll tell you what, as a performer, after this experience, I don't think I'll ever take an audience for granted again. Yeah. And I don't think audiences will ever take live performers for granted again. We get we can get kind of cynical, especially like in places like Los Angeles or like Las Vegas, where there's just so much entertainment 
there's so many options and now it's just been all destroyed. So we're going to have to rekindle all the, the furnaces and get the engines burning again and get all this live entertainment going again. My hope is after like when we're all vaccinated and we've killed this thing and we're safe, that it, it can be kind of almost like what you know the Spanish flu led into the Roaring Twenties. I'm hoping that we get our own Roaring Twenties. I think uh, you're right in the 2020s. I love it. That's <laughs> you, should, you should write a blog. About yes, that. Uh, it doesn't seem like there's going to be any lack of enthusiasm for just people going back to normal. And I, I mean, travel, entertainment, all this. I don't know if we'll ever be normal, but I do know that our thirst for entertainment hasn't gone down. Like we felt this in the sure, video man. game business. Uh, and how cool is that? You know, as the world needed us most, uh, our industry was there to at least try to help people find joy and happiness when they're stuck at home for a year uh, through interactive and connecting online. And that's pretty cool. I, I agree. Uh, and I, we, I think we've all been lucky in this industry that certainly that our, our businesses kind of work no matter what. Yeah, I, I feel very fortunate. I mean, we all had to adapt to working from home. I, you know, I'm seeing, I'm in, I'm in your studio and I can see, wow, there's no one here yet. Of course, like my studio is totally shut down. We're all work from home, but we, it was surprising how quickly we adapted. Uh, at the beginning of that, I thought, I thought that, uh, everything was going to change and we, there's so much uncertainty, you know, mm -hmm. so I'm getting very cautious. Like my immediate moves were very cautious and, and, and being like kind of trimming back on some of our risk taking and then focusing on that adapting to work from home. And then it wasn't too long where we're like, you know what, we're actually performing pretty well. You know, all the metrics we have from like task tracking to check-ins, you know, Hey, we're, we're actually about where we were before we went work from home and we got there within a month. So we, I don't know, confidence just swelled. <laughs> and and that's, I think, the nature of the games business as well, though. I mean, we all have to be flexible because it's not yeah. just the pandemics, the pandemic or any yeah. other, you know, recent crisis that affects us. We are constantly dealing with a changing industry, right? It, it is, yeah. I mean, that's one of the, that's one of the neat things, I think, about what we get to do. And I'm so grateful we get to do it where there's this technology component, which is science, but it's literally changing every year there's new and, and it's not just changing from you know the hardware point of view it's business models and the way we reach the people we're trying to entertain and and then of course the the, the whole creative side of of video games i mean it is art it's totally subjective so you got this hard science objective component that's constantly changing and adapting and you have to live on the bleeding edge and that's blended with this subjective you know, emotional component, uh, there's, there's nothing more impossible and more stimulating than what I think we get to do. And I just, uh, it, it amazes me that we, we actually get any of it done. <laughs> it's, that's right. I think we're all conditioned to it after having dealt with it for so long. And, and speaking of so long, Gearbox has been around for a long time. Yeah. We're, we're at, uh, 22 years now. So not, not quite as long as, as your studio, but we've been, you know, we've been at it. Which is incredible, right? Yeah. For any any developer to be around more than ten years. I yeah, think you know, it, it's weird awesome. though. I don't know how you felt when you started Insomniac, but we didn't really have like a plan. We just knew we wanted to make games, and we knew we, like the handful of us that started the company liked working with each other, and we felt like we had more to offer if we stuck together and worked as a team than if we just like you know got jobs at other existing studios. So um, I, I had no idea uh, what where we'd be in five years, let alone ten or twenty two. We just wanted to entertain people with interactive. 
And was that your inspiration, just to purely entertain people? Or was there something That's, specific that you really wanted to do when you started Gearbox? I think, no, I think that the goal is just entertainment. I okay. think, like, you know, I, I, as we talked about, I was a magician before I was a game developer. And, you know, I grew up with computers and programming computers and and that's always been a part of my life. And I had this weird kind of moment. I was working as a magician. I was paying mm -hmm. my way through college as a magician. And I, uh, I was working at this nightclub that used to be on universal city walk called wizards. Do you remember it? Do you remember, you know, city walk, right? I do. Yeah. So in back when it opened, uh, in the middle of city walk, there was this magic themed nightclub called Wizards. So I, I was there when it opened, I, I was a tour guide at universal studios they're building city walk. It's like, wait, that looks like it might be a magic club. I walked in there one day and said, Hey, can I talk to the, you know, whoever's running this place? And I met the guy and he asked me to show him some stuff. So I showed him some stuff. He asked me if I had a tux. I said, yes, I didn't. <laughs> and then uh, he hired me. And so I became, I, I got a full-time job as a magician there. So I'm doing that uh, four or five nights a week. Um, you know, an eight hour shifts. I had a salaried job. I punched in, you know, uh, as a magician, but I was writing games and other programs as a hobby in my free time. So when this weird thing happened, I uploaded, um, this program I wrote, which it wasn't even a game. It was a tool that I was using to manage, um, an online competitive ladder. Uh, you know, I used to compete in like, um, things like Warcraft and Command HQ and like some of the early stuff. This is all on CompuServe. Okay. Like this is pre like internet. And, uh, and so I uploaded this tool to, uh, to the CompuServe games, modem games forum. And then I went to work at wizards and I do my eight hour shift. And then I come home and I noticed that my, my program had been downloaded like 2,500 times. And I did the math in my head really quick, trying to guesstimate how many people I entertained at the magic club. And I'm like, okay, I was strolling in the bar. Let's say there was average, like I'll say two and a half people per, you know, per table I stopped at. I spent about 10 minutes per table. You know, I had a few breaks. I like math at all. I'm like, Oh my God, I just destroyed those numbers with just one piece of software. And I realized this is, this is scalable entertainment. Like it's so fun to like blow people's minds when you're there with them and you can see their reactions. But with, magic, I was fundamentally limited by the number of people in the room. But with video games, we can make something and it's like zero sum. Like you can, you can go, you can reach however many people are interested and all over the world, uh, which is incredible. And, and that was the light bulb moment where I think maybe I should be making video games and it's a different form of magic. You know, it's just a form of entertainment. We, yeah. we do all the same stuff. So how did you t go from that idea that you should be, there was a broader venue of, of potential fans and, and people yeah. to entertain uh, to actually starting Gearbox? What was, did you, did you have a game in mind? Did you mm -hmm. have a, had uh, an engine that you had written and you said, okay, let's use this? No, I, you know, I thought, I thought that video game, like, you know, when you're, before you get in the business, at least before I got in the business, like you'd, you'd see like an arcade cabinet or you'd buy a computer game from Babbage's or something. And you think like there's some chocolate factory somewhere and there's a chocolate river and there's Oompa Loompas and all this magic happens. And then this video game pops out on the other end. Cause like, like most people, I had some skills that I developed on my own, but there's also some specialization there. Like I wasn't great at art. Um, you know, I can make, I can make a sound card and make noise, but I'm not like a composer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, so what I did was uh, I started doing some research and I found that there are actual companies 
where people make video games. And I started sending out resumes and, and demos. And it turned out, I guess at the time, this was in the early, like early, it's like 94, 95. Um, there was a lot of demand. There was a more demand for content than there were people creating it. Mm -hmm. So almost every single place I sent something to reached, reached back to me in one way or another. And um, I ended up going down the path with a couple of companies pretty far. Um, one was uh, LucasArts, and they wanted to make a game in the Star Wars uh, universe that was a first-person shooter. And I had been playing around with some stuff like that. It, it ended up being Dark Forces, but I, I didn't know that at the time. And the other company was a company called 3D Realms. And they had they were... Uh, well, it's Apogee, and Apogee published Wolfenstein, which was like Wolfenstein turned me from like an RPG guy into an action guy. That that single handedly did that, and uh, and so I was talking to both of them. They were both, you know, we we're negotiating, uh, and I went with uh, Apogee 3D Realms because, um, well, first of all, the, the LucasArts attitude. I mean, I don't. I mean, look, I don't know who was there. I don't remember who was there at the time. This was twenty five years ago, thirty years ago. Um, their attitude was like, you know, maybe you should be paying us. You get to work on Star Wars. You know, they were like so cocky and their attitude was kind of shitty. Um, whereas 3D Realms, they were kind of down to earth, they seemed to me. And they also had a royalty program. They promised to pay me a percentage of the of the um, the profits of the game. And I thought, that, well, that's interesting. Which was a good thing, too, because like my salary was like $28,000. But I took the job and I moved out to Texas. And that was my first gig as a professional game developer was on the Duke Nukem team. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and I was, I did a little bit of coding. I mostly did level design actually at that point. Okay. And, uh, it was a lot of fun and I learned a lot really quick and that experience demystified it. Okay. And once it was demystified, there was no going back and it didn't take me long. I think I was at 3D Realms for about a year and then that's when I branched out on my own. And what was, what was the first step that you took? In starting the company, yeah. So with gear, so there was a step in between Gearbox. If you're if you're curious about what what happened there at that moment, there was a lot of interesting things going on in Dallas, right? The the whole first person shooter genre was being born there. Um, uh, some friends of mine that I'd worked with uh, on the Duke Nukem stuff and on this game called Prey, uh, they founded a company that became Ritual Entertainment. Um, uh, another friend of mine, Tom Hall regrouped with John Romero from it when he left it and they founded Ion Storm and they're all like, Hey, come with us, come with us. And, um, and that, that was all really exciting because there was a lot of activity, uh, at the time, but each thing felt like a little off for who I was. And then there was this other guy, a guy named Billy Zelznak, a genius programmer, just absolutely brilliant. He taught Carmack how to do real time lighting in Quake. Like if you look at the credits in Quake, you see special thanks to Billy Zelznak. That's because of the lighting model that, that he gave, uh, that he gave Carmack and, uh, and, and Billy worked with me at 3d realms. And so he started his own company called rebel boat rocker. And his thesis was pretty simple. His thesis was, Hey, come on, join us. Everybody's equal. We're all going to run this company together between us. We can all figure it out. And I was like, all right, hippie free love. Let's all, you know, utopian, everyone's equal. So I decided to, to join him and to join his company. And he was the president of the company and we all really kind of looked to him, but um, 
it was a terrible model. Like that is like, you can't like, I totally respect, you can't make anything without teamwork. Yeah. But you also, there's, there's, there's a reality to time and space that requires like you need organizational structure for communication flow. And sometimes it's helpful for decision-making and it's also extremely helpful for specialization. Uh, and you know, I'm, I'm a 20 something, like I still had braces on my teeth. I, you know, I thought this sounds like, so I did it and we got a deal, um, with, uh, electronic arts and, uh, we, we, you know, we had a budget and we started making this game. Um, and Billy was a genius, but he also, I don't think he was interested in being an entertainer. I don't think he cared about the customer at all. And I don't think he cared about the audience at all. He wanted to solve really difficult and interesting problems. So we never had like a physics system working in his engine, but we had like five or six iterations of the most unbelievable lighting in a real time renderer that you'd ever seen, especially at that point in time. Like he was miles ahead of everybody with, you know, arbitrary polygons and, and lighting on, on in, in, in 3d engine at that time, like way ahead on there, but there was no physics. Can't make a game. Yeah. Exactly. So it took about 18 months before EA figured out that this probably wasn't going to happen and they canceled our project. And I liked a lot of the folks that we worked with everybody, you know, first we thought everybody's going to scatter. We all got job offers from everybody we talked to. Um, we were doing some really cool stuff, but, um, I talked, uh, I talked to, there was five of us. I talked four of my buddies that I worked with at, at Rebel Belt Rocker into joining me and, hey, let's, I think we should do this. I don't think we should break up. There's something special about us. We know each other now. We understand each other's strengths and know how to play off of them. And we've learned each other's weaknesses and we know how to automatically mitigate them. And like some of these guys, like I can communicate in just a look what someone I haven't worked with before would take paragraphs. You know what I mean? You, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. You've, you've been through this. And so I kind of said, well, what, you know, let's give it a shot. And, uh, and so, you know, I got everybody in my living room and probably just ground them down and talked them into it. And then, uh, and then we, we did, I hired a lawyer and, um, we did the, I mean, it was a total lawyer in a box job you know, with a, you know, very generic articles of incorporation founded the LLC. We didn't have a whole lot of money. I think all in, uh, we probably spent $5,000 to found the company. And, uh, I mean, we each put in a thousand bucks and that was it. And then, uh, and then, and then we thought about, okay, what are we going to do? And we knew one thing, we weren't going to try to write our own engine. Hmm. <laughs> Let's try to work with something where the engine already exists. Uh, cause that was an Achilles heel with rebel boat rocker. Also, we're trying to build a company. Um, if we do that at the same time that we try to build an IP and an engine and all this other stuff, maybe that's not the best play. What if we uh, worked on a game that's within an existing franchise? And this was in January of 1999. And in November of 1998, of course, Half-Life launched. And all of us, and we're, you know, we're Dallas guys playing first-person shooters. And we're like, this is pretty great. Um, so uh, I I got one day, one morning I got the guys together and I pitched them my idea for Half-Life Opposing Force. Like, what if you're one of those soldiers that invaded Black Mesa and everybody liked it? It's like, see, the Half-Life engine's done. We know some of those guys. We're, it's, it's, it's a Quake engine, so we're totally familiar with all the, you know, Carmackian style, Carmackian. <laughs> like, we know that code. Right. We know that those, the tool path. We understand that, that, that chain. Oh, the other criteria was we wanted to be able to have a project that we could ship quickly. We wanted mm -hmm. to finish. Mm -hmm. None of this like, okay, three years later, we'll see how we did kind of stuff. We like, 
can we imagine a project we can finish in six months? So, okay, an add-on pack for an existing game with an existing engine, that's probably a smart first move. So uh, what was random about this is it was that night after I told everybody my idea for Half-Life, I'm like, yeah, I'll figure out a way. I don't know, I'll go, I'll call Sierra or something. Gabe Newell called me. Can you believe that shit? Like that's totally fucking karma. random. Yeah. Pardon my French, but yeah. like he called me because he'd heard about from uh, a friend of ours, uh, Doug Wood, who I'd worked with at 3D Realms, who who was one of the first guys at Valve. He did all the animations and stuff. Uh, and he brought this. The, he actually was with us at Rebel Boat Rocker. He, we were doing what were scripted sequences. Remember, we had no physics. Right. So we just canned animate guys and we do it all canned. Uh, cause that's the only thing we can do. And he brought that idea up to valve. And that's like, whenever you see those, like, you know, the scientists and the security guards are doing something and it unfolds and it, you just kind of catch it in front of you and you don't totally interact with it, but it's there happening in the first person shoot. That was the first time we saw that kind of stuff. That's, that's, I, that's an idea he borrowed and brought with him from rebel boat rocker because that's, and it's not because we invented that. We just had no other way to make a game because we had no simulation. <laughs> so we were trying to fake a simulation through canning everything. Um, anyway, he, he, I think told Gabe, Hey man, you should, these guys, you know, rebel boat rockers gone. I think Randy's going to keep going. You guys, you should call him up because we need somebody to do an add on pack. And I'm like, Hey, have I got an idea for you? And, uh, he said, well, why don't you come up to Seattle and tell me what you're thinking? I said, that's cool, but I'm broke. So, uh, can you buy me a plane <laughs> ticket and put me up in a hotel? And Gabe agreed to do that. And he flew me up there and I, and I pitched him the, 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 the concept and and he brought a couple other people in the room and I'm talking to Laidlaw and, and some of those guys and they seemed to dig it. And he said, okay, here, this is great. Here's the thing. We don't own Half-Life and we don't have the, like we're not at a point where we could finance this. So I'm going to call ahead, but you're going to drive down the street to Sierra online and you're going to tell them exactly what you just told me. And because, uh, you know, it was back in the day. He did a publishing deal like all of us did. Yep. And it took some time before Valve figured out a way to, acquire the half-life franchise back from Sierra and, you know, leverage their position and take advantage of the fact that they're the creators to get all that control that they deserved. But back in that moment, that wasn't the case. So I drove down the street and I met this guy, Scott Lynch, who was running that, uh, at Sierra. And then he brought Doug Lombardi in the room. Both those guys ended up later at valve, by the way, I don't know if you know that, but, uh, I pitched them and they seemed to dig it. And, uh, and he asked me, uh, Scott asked me how much I thought it would take to do it. And I hadn't done a plan yet. I just had a concept and I had some guys that, you know, amongst us, we could code and build art and make levels and do all the things we needed to do. And so I just cold clocked like, uh, oh, probably about 1.5 million. I, I had, I hadn't made, I hadn't even written a single thing down. He's like, well, it's a little high, but you know, it's, we could probably, let me, let me work on a PL. I'm like, Oh shit, this is on. <laughs> so that night in the hotel room, I, you know, fired up Excel and I did the best I could to like make out a real plan. And through some negotiation, we ended up closing the deal and it was uh 700 grand is how much we had to make half-life opposing force. And that was our first game. And we finished, I, I was up there, I think it was at the end of January. We closed that deal in April. Uh, I think it was April 15th. And I was at E3 two weeks later doing a demo of Half-Life Opposing Force with the level that I built <laughs> like in that time. Uh, that is and it was cool. It was, and I'm like on the show floor demoing this game with, with code that was two weeks old at best. And like stuff that I, some of the stuff I compiled like the night before, just okay. <laughs> 
That's that was the that's how it was back then. <laughs> that's a great. Beginning. That was ninety nine, <laughs> and that was the beginning of Gearbox. <laughs> yeah. And so from there, I mean, that's what a, what a wonderful way to start. And at what point did you all decide? Okay, great, we proved that we can ship a game, even if it's not one that we created. We should do our own thing. Yeah. Well, there was a few steps in there. You know, I'm kind of a kind of a patient guy in that regard. Very crawl, walk, run, not just you know get up and run. I. I I like optionality and I, I'm not, I mean, sometimes I'm a risk taker, but I always do it when there's outs, you know what I mean? Like if I'm going to take a risk, there's going to be something else where if this crashes into a mountain, we're good. Yeah. So, you know, we did a bunch of stuff with, with Sierra for half-life. Hmm. Um, we did half-life and then we did a, an expansion called blue shift and then we helped out with the dreamcast version and then we ported half-life to the PlayStation two. Yep. And there was opportunity there, of course, but for us, yeah, we made some money. But we also learned how to be console developers. I, I still have like a literal bronzed PlayStation 2 that Sierra sent me with a little plaque because it was the, it was the first console game that Sierra ever published. Um, and I remember, you know, I went out to Sony. This was before the PlayStation 2 launch. It was it didn't exist yet, and they made me go in the room that they had to put the handprint in, you know, to 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 look at this, the hardware and get the briefing. And I think. You know, do you know Tina Koaleski? Yeah, she was the she was our account manager back then, All so right. she shepherded shepherded me through the whole thing, and uh, and so we managed to convince Sony we could do it, and and Sierra seemed to, you know, they were making plenty of money off of our work, so they were happy to take some more risk with us, and Valve seemed to be happy. We we're financing Half-Life 2 for them, I think. <laughs> with all the, like we were doing literally all the expansions and all the console versions for them. Um, so and they were getting a cut of all that stuff. So uh yeah, so that was great. So so the, but each step kind of gave us some confidence. There was a moment when there were some seams in that crack. There were some cracks in that that yeah, whatever the idiom is. Um when we they they wanted us to do the retail version of Counter-Strike and then do like a a a full original game within the Counter-Strike brand. And Valve pitched us. They were they were working on getting the IP back, and they were work. They were playing a game there with Sierra, and they were doing some deals with some other folks like Activision and Microsoft. And um, we did a deal with Valve. And Valve at that point, I'm sure they're so much better today. But at that point, they didn't. They weren't a publisher, and they didn't know how to have that role in the relationship. And they were absolutely terrible. It was a disaster. So, and it was at the same time that we were doing that first retail version of Counter Strike that um, we um, that I kind of realized I needed to get some experience with other folks. So I'm like, okay, let's try to do a deal. Who's who's the biggest and the best? There's Electronic Arts. There's Activision. There's the first parties, Microsoft, Sony, Nintendo. So I did a deal with Electronic Arts, and we did a James Bond game for him. And I did a deal with Activision, and we did the a port of Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 3 for um and you know at that time Tony Hawk's Pro Skater was the biggest game that Activision had and and uh EA had bigger stuff but they had no first person shooters and so they licensed the James Bond IP and they were trying to get into first person shooters so I thought that was a great way to learn what it would be like to work with those guys and they seemed to think that uh we were worth taking a bet on so we figured out the deal and we did it um, and those games worked out and everybody made money and, and I learned a lot about what it would be like to work with Activision and EA, um, and got a lot of experience. I think those are the only deals we ever did with Activision and EA, but 
you know, this, they, 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 they're, they're doing, they're running their businesses great. And it was along that, that time that I also did a deal with Microsoft because, um, they had, uh, they had, they bought this company Bungie mm-hmm. and, uh, they had this game Halo that they that they were doing, that they announced initially on the Mac for the PC and Microsoft wanted to, uh, build a console, the Xbox. And they thought, okay, we'll buy Bungie and we'll redirect all the attention around Halo and this will be the flagship product for the Xbox. And they were going to compete in the console world. And I thought the Bungie thing, I thought Bungie was great. I love those guys and um, they're really smart. And I thought Halo was a cool pitch. Uh, To me, it was always a PC game, you know? So I got involved with them and say, why don't, why don't we help you guys? You know, there could, you have windows, like there should be a PC version of this. Come on, let's do this. And, uh, we worked it out. So Microsoft did a deal with us where we made the PC version of Halo and Bungie. We're working closely with Bungie on that. And in the same interaction, that relationship was great. And those guys were great to work with. I thought, and it was, it was pretty strong. And, um, they also, uh, they also felt like maybe we should take a bet on Gearbox for this original stuff. Cause we had been probably starting in 2002. I was actually actively trying to get business development for a gearbox original IP. Um, even back while we're working on opposing force, we're dreaming up stuff. So we had concepts and we had things that we thought were bankable, mm-hmm. but you know, it's difficult to get these guys, you know, especially, I mean, we're better today, but, Back then, like a lot of the industry where the risk was being taken were people that didn't exactly get, like it was a business to them. You know what I mean? And risk was a different equation than it is, I think, for people that understand the creative value of of a lot of the folks today that are making these decisions. They're also gamers. That was There were no gamers back when this all started because we were all inventing the industry together. But um, by the time I got into it, a lot of those suits were still not, they didn't, they, they didn't get the love of the content. You know what I mean? So it was like, it was really hard to get people to trust you. Um, but with Microsoft, I managed to get a breakthrough there and we did a deal for a game that was codenamed war game. I actually had, I actually had that deal both with Activision and with Microsoft. I was running them in parallel. We didn't close with, we, so you were were negotiating. Yes. No negotiating in parallel. And I, I pitched Activision first. They loved it. Uh, it's called war game. My sell sheet had the tagline in war, no one fights alone. Cause my pitch was, um, uh, in, um, when we did Duke Nukem, like the world is shut down until Duke enters the room and then the monsters wake up and then you have a, you have a simulation occur, but every, it's like, there's only one character and he's the center of the universe. And I thought, you know, we could, we can make the simulation feel a little more alive. We could use AI guys. And, and I was using war as a concept to do that. Like there's other soldiers and you're fighting along with them. And, uh, yeah. So, so Activision loved this. And, um, and what was interesting was, uh, while we were negotiating this, a game launched called, uh, Medal of Honor and it blew up. And so now Activision was like, Oh shit, let's really go. Right. And it was a great deal. It was a great deal. And Microsoft comes over the top and they offered like three X, the marketing commitment. And so I had to call, I had to call the Activision guys and say, and it was, uh, it was Bill Anchor. Remember mm-hmm. Bill? Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm like Bill, dude, I, like, I would totally want to try this with you. We had a great experience with Tony Hawk. Like this is the situation. What would you do if you were me? 
And then apparently like Bobby or Larry or somebody called uh, Ed Freeze at Microsoft and threatened them to like not support the X. It was a big freaking deal. I don't know what that was all behind the scenes. I just heard about this. They worked it all out and I ended up doing the deal with Microsoft. And, and I think it worked out great for Activision because, um, uh, you know, our, the, the freaking, you remember Jason and Vince, yep. uh, they, they had been kind of lured out to LA to try to do something with EA, but I don't, I don't know what was taken. So there's something, there's something about that it was taken long or something in Activision. Now they did all this user research. They had all this people spun up to work on this war game with us. And then we just left. So that immediately went in the direction of that team and, you know, infinity ward and call of duty happened. So how great is that? Like we got, we got all these great call of duty games and those guys like just have done so much for the industry. And we were just stumbling around, not knowing that what the hell we're doing. So we, we eventually, of course, um, that game on our side formed into brothers in arms, which is the first original gearbox game. And, and you'll remember Microsoft didn't publish that. Um, I had this weird, I had this cool out that I negotiated that, um, the thing I was worried about with Microsoft, this is before the Xbox launch. I'm like, I don't, if you guys aren't the guys, like, I don't want to be stuck in an orbit forever. I, I, I'm here to deliver content to, to customers. So I had this thing with me where we had this kind of plan where we're going to, you know, there, there were milestones of course, but, but I put in a couple where, okay, here's where we're going to like figure out our launch plan. And uh, that was kind of like a go or no go where I had a clear window where with a, with the marketing commitment they pledged and all that, where the game was going to launch here as long as we, as long as we pass this. And if there's fuzziness in there, then I can just get out and go somewhere else. So that time happened exactly like in the same exact week as Ed Freeze leaving Microsoft. So they were just broken. And they didn't, they didn't even have the successor. And I'm like, what do you guys want to do? Like, I think you're cool, but I got it. Like, I'm ready to go. Like, I've got a product here. We need to like blast, like we're, we're, we're like, we're past all the hard work. It's production time. Let's make this product and, and ship it. And, um, and they, they were cool. I, so I bought myself back out and I shopped it around again and, and the relation, we did it great. Like the relationship with Microsoft was great. So that was one of those examples where it didn't go the way everybody planned, but everybody was super cool. And like, I felt good about it. The Microsoft guys feel, felt good about it. Um, and uh, we ended up shopping around and funny, like EA was looking at it, um, EIP at the mm -hmm. time. And then Ubisoft ended up uh, winning because they offered us their Shanghai team to port it to the PlayStation. Remember when we were with Microsoft, we had no PlayStation code, even though we had some expertise before from the Half-Life for PlayStation. That was in the PlayStation, of course, was PlayStation 2 was massive. Yeah. That's that's where all the customers were. So we're like, ah, oh. so Ubisoft just totally they 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 stole it by by giving us an ability to to reach PlayStation. So that was the first original game. And we launched Brothers in Arms and we were just some punk kid underdogs not knowing what we're doing. And uh Well you actually had a lot of experience at that point because what you had done prior in the three years, three, four years was pretty, pretty hefty. Yeah. Yeah. There was definitely some crawling before we were walking. Yeah. We, we, I mean, doing the console versions of, of half-life wasn't, was non-trivial. And it sounds it, like you did a lot in a very short period of time. Yes, we right? did. And uh, you know, the halo work too, that was, that was actually really tough stuff. The halo, cause halo, I don't know if you know this, brilliant engine and it, that like we learned all this cool stuff about data-driven design like the, the the design everything was data it was amazing but 
the engine that Bungie had built was a, a was was fundamentally architected as a synchronous deterministic engine, and we were going to try to make Halo play over the internet on a PC, where you need like packets are flying coming in out of order, like you need non-determinism and you need asynchronous simulation. Uh, clients and hosts have to have different understandings of what truth is, and they have to find a way to resolve that with each other because. There's no synchronicity. Like if you're playing on a LAN and you could literally not let the next frame on on player two move forward until player one's input is collected, it's fine. Right. And that's how that's how the engine was architected. So we had to basically recreate how the Halo engine worked, but make it absolutely Halo. Like to everyone that's playing like single player or any version of it, it feels like Halo through and through. But we had to fundamentally change the architecture. That was that was some. That was some tough stuff. <laughs> there was some pucker factor going on in there, and there was some crate, some good ninja stuff going on underneath the hood on that. Um, yeah, that was fun, uh, and we we learned a lot. And I think a lot of the lessons there, in fact, that we learned um, with with doing data driven stuff is what enabled us to later do Borderlands. Um, it, it we we kind of iterated and evolved, and really like took that concept of of having it, having data behind everything, and that allowed us to do all the procedural stuffs where we can you know a tiny team can build a game with millions of guns in it. Which I remember we looked at at Insomniac uh, pretty carefully, and we were we're we're big multi weapon fans uh, in our games. Yes, and you guys are the best at that. Like well, you. <laughs> well, we we well, we were always looking at what you did and go, God, how did they do that? How did they yeah. manage to create so many variations of their weapons that are fun and unique? And uh, and so hearing you talk about the proceduralism behind that and yeah. the data driven approach is is fascinating because obviously you were ahead way you're way ahead of us and you're what yeah, really, times in general. Really quickly and it was, you know, the it, what kind of there was a couple things that started it. You know, we had that experience with the Halo engine and with their with Bungie's approach with data driven stuff there, and that was really inspiring. We didn't do what they did, but it opened up our minds a lot. And then you know, there's this argument that happens when you start a shooter, and the argument is like, okay, what's going to be our shotgun? You know, is it going to be like the Doom Two double barrel where you have a long cycle time, but it really packs a lot of punch, but it's close range only? It's going to be more like you know, maybe it's like the painkiller jackhammer or you know, higher rate of fire, but you know, you're not going to get one shot kills. Like it, there's this, and it's a it's a religious debate because you can only have one shotgun, yeah, yep. because the keyboard goes one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. So that's all the weapons you're going to get, right? Um, and you and you know, and, and there's playfulness, like you, okay, you're going to do the standard kind of things, and then you're going to have the hand like as you get up in the numbers you're going to do the goofball stuff and that's where bfgs come from or where like where like you guys with ratchet and clank got to you guys played you guys did such cool stuff well we, but, we weren't we weren't limited to the key to the keyboard that's right so that you're, you're, you you yeah. had different paradigms but and i'm being cynical of course you know by then we're already console gamers yeah. but um we're console developers so i'm being a little cynical but but it's hardwired from that old school like we we came out of like we're i'm literally in dallas as you know doom and duke nukem and quake and all that is being invented and so that is just hardwired in my brain sure. and half of our core team that's where we all come from so uh, so we had to like, it was like, well, what, if, what if, what if we could have all the shotguns, <laughs> you know, what if we could have all the rocket launchers? Why do we like with this argument, stupid, we have this argument every time. What if we just had all and it's like, oh, wow. Okay. How do we do that? You know, so that we had this like mind opening possibility from the data driven influences, um, 
we, we this is guy Jimmy who's amazing who really was thinking a lot about doing things procedurally and he had a lot of great stuff there and then and then just the designers not wanting to compromise and that led to okay I guess we're just gonna have to crack this nut and uh, I remember when we got um, we we made a bunch of uh, pieces like different materials and different um, uh, pieces of models that we could assemble together and we gave each of them properties that would affect some of the properties of how the weapon performed. So if you got this handle with this texture, those two things would affect some of the properties of, of what would happen with the gun uh, and the barrels and all that kind of stuff. And we, we made, so we made all this content. It was kind of sloppy, but it was good enough where it kind of looked good. Um, Cause you know, sometimes you prototype things and you reject it on more visceral terms, even mm -hmm. though the design solid. So we wanted to give it a, a good chance. We, we put some production value into this test. We got all these pieces in, got it all wired up. And I remember like, I, you know, I was, I was with Jimmy and he's like, you know, just presses the P, P key and out comes one of these procedurally generated things. That's P for pistol. You start shooting like guns are flying out of the body and they're all different. Like pick one up. It's like, oh, wow, that feels like something. Pick that one up. And it all just worked. And it was like, how, when, how often does that happen? I mean, there's a lot of stuff leading up to that point. Yeah. But usually there's another, you know, some number of dozens of hours of like problem solving and bug fixing. But in this case, there was this moment where, and, and there was some of that along the way, but when it, when it kind of came together, we all just felt it and we knew this is, this is magic. We've just, we've done something that hasn't been done before and it's probably going to be meaningful. Uh, let's, let's give it the best platform we can to, to make that happen. And then like, you know, then that's when all the universe building stuff. It's like, wow, if we're going to make a video game where the whole point is to kill people and take their shit, how can we make you a hero? <laughs> so we had to invent a universe that yeah. could make it okay to be that guy, you know? Uh, and that's how the Borderlands universe kind of followed the design. This episode is supported by Games Boost 42. Games Boost 42 is a fintech startup built to disrupt the mobile games and apps industry. They help developers increase their revenue and grow faster without any investors or publishers by providing them with marketing budgets. Want to attract more users to your game or app? Gamesboost 42 gives you early access to your app store revenues, allowing you to multiply your growth and keep 100% control of your company. See how they can help you grow by visiting gamesboost42.com. Well, I remember one other thing that you did too that I was really impressed with. I remember playing Borderlands for the first time at E3. Uh, when you the first time you had it on display, mm, yeah. and it was something maybe this maybe this sounds dumb, but just seeing the numbers popping off of the guys when you shot them made me think, wow, why aren't we doing that? Yeah, because right? we were building. Yeah, we did all that. Too. We put we we totally stole like from like RPG style thinking. Uh, um, uh, and, and here and honestly, there was a couple reasons why we did that. Um, uh, and I remember the fights I had with people. Um, inside I'm of sure, Gearbox. I'm sure you did, yeah. right? Because that was a religious was, moment. Yep. And, and here's, here's what it was. Um, there was, you know, we were, we were building it on the Unreal Engine and we were okay at it, but it never, the, the way character, the way the enemies moved around the environment never felt perfect to us. Like the way we were doing animation, they weren't perfectly grounded. It wasn't, it wasn't physics based, you know, animation. It was, you know, we had, we had walk cycles and we're sliding around the volume, you know, and it's like, and, and so kind of look cartoonish and, um, 
our flinches, you know, the more we do flinches, then the worse it would be for the gameplay because when the character's flinching, it can't then put, it can't put you in peril. It can't impose back because it's busy doing a flinch. Um, and so it, it, what it occurred to me that, you know, when we play RPG games, we don't care about any of that. We don't care about any of that stuff that we care so much about in first person. And it's because what we care about is this, the feedback loop isn't between like trying to simulate a real person interacting in the world. The feedback loop is between what is the capability of my, my verb and what is the, what is the actual mathematical feedback of that verb? And even though you can't like read the numbers or really parse it, your brain, it, it just changes the way your ba- brain's parsing what's being presented to you. And it let us get away with murder. Cause like the, there's so much shit that's just absolutely terrible, in, especially in Borderlands 1, that because we put the health bars and the numbers, it just changes the, the user's relationship with what they expect that simulation to be. Yep. And it was one of the hardest fight, hot battles we had, I think, at Gearbox. And, but I knew it was right. And I mean, I think that kind of goes back to the, to the magic stuff. To do magic, you have to know what's going on in the audience's mind when you're doing, when you're showing them your thing and you can't assume that they're going to take anything that you've got with them. So you've got to kind of trick that mind a little bit into being okay with whatever, you know, with whatever bullshit you're creating. I mean, all this stuff is fake that we're doing. Of course. So you yeah. have to make the audience okay with it. And if you don't meet a certain threshold with where the rest of the industry is, you're dead. So you have to kind of subvert that and find a way to make that okay. And that's, that's, that's really what that came from. Well, it works beautifully. It, 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 we got away with a lot. I remember. But um, I, I will say, though, too, it also works really well in parallel with what you were describing with the weapons, right? Without without that, I, at least for me as a player, I, the my weapon choices feel a lot more meaningless, yes, right? So, yes. And, and the immense variety of, of weapons feels more cosmetic. And, and, and that's so. a component to it. We're also like, that's why it was such a neat, elegant thing, because it's signaling a couple things. That, that was the main problem I was trying to solve. But it, yes, it also signals like this is, there, there's a stat kind of yeah. component to this game it's not it's not just a reaction time skill test it's also about your gear yeah and we did other rpg stuff like this was a really important thing that i just had to had to force when you first come out of the entry area in borderlands one the, the 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 first objective you're likely to have will take you up the hill and you can also go to the left and there's some skags down there and all these guys are around the level they're like level two or three which is about where you would be the first time you come but if you go to the right there's some guys over there that are level five six and a boss that's level nine and it's just barely to the right yeah and you are dead like you can't like it doesn't matter what how good you are at fps you just don't have the stats to deal with that and because they're right there and that confronts you it kind of also Oh, I have to play that. And people died a lot there, but it teaches them that they have to play the stat game. And then, you know, the numbers being on there and the health bars and like every gun has this, this item card, which has stats on it. And like, without having to walk people through a tutorial, it lets people kind of learn and discover that on their own and then play the game that we designed. Um, Which is to me, that's the MMO uh, attraction, right? mm -hmm. We, all of us who grew up or, or, in our young adult uh, era played MMOs, hardcore MMOs, yes. right? That's the, those are those moments yes. where you, you just get slaughtered, but yes. you, boy, do you want to And then you back. can grind up and then, then you're later a God yeah. and it's the same guys are no problem when yeah. you've, and that feels incredibly gratifying. And yeah. And what's interesting is that whole loop, that loop we feel, whether we're talking about an MMO, like, um, you know, whether it's world of Warcraft or, you know, um, or, or a game like Diablo, um, that whole loop, depends on no twitch skill at all right 
Like when you play World of Warcraft, you're literally clicking on icons. Like when you play Diablo, you're literally clicking a cursor on icon. The yep. skill to play the game is the exact same skill that was required to launch the application. <laughs> right? There's no, there's no, but like when you're playing a first person shooter where it's it's a raw, it's a whole different ball game, right? You have to like really be good at the Twitch. You have to master this idea of left hand, right hand. If you're playing on a joystick, if you're playing on a mouse and keyboard, it's the same problem. And that's not natural. You have to develop that skill. And even if you do, now, like the juking, the timing, like all that stuff is really paramount to your ability to succeed in those skill tests. Whereas in an RPG and what we did in Borderlands, you could suck at the game. And if you grind enough and get the stats up enough, you're just a god. Just like people just explode in front of you because <laughs> you're just so overpowered. And that feeling of being OP is pretty amazing. Yeah. It's, and we love feeling powerful in our video games. It's well, like, you do a great job of it. I mean, I think Borderlands is is known for that. It's just over the top, and and not just ridiculous. in the gameplay, but in the theming yeah. and the humor. And you know, it's a gift and a curse, frankly. I mean, I love that stuff, and we can't help ourselves. And I'm really grateful that we found a way to make this kind of absurd universe we'd created fit with the art direction. We weren't there, you know, we started more realism mm -hmm. and we kind of found the art direction and I'm grateful for all of that, but I also know it puts a ceiling on us. Um, there's a lot of people that I'd like to entertain that I think would really love Borderlands, but they just can't bring themselves to get into it because of the art direction, for example, or because the universe at the end of the day is a space Western. <laughs> I, you know what? We, we actually ran into the same challenge with Sunset Overdrive. Oh, it, totally. It was oh, a yeah. completely polarizing and That game, game right? was amazing, by the way. Oh, I love Sunset Overdrive. But yeah, it, I don't know that it's polarizing. It's just, it, it's just they can't parse it. Or they just there's something wrong in some people's minds where it's like, oh, that's not for me. That's crazy. Well, absolutely. It's the art, the art style. And if they'd only give it a chance, they'd find that hardcore. game is amazing. Well, it's amazing. Yeah, I, thanks. It's but that's that's the beauty of games, though, because we all can try these crazy combinations and and see if they work. And obviously, in Borderlands, it really did work, and it is we managed. To, we got lucky a little bit, and we broke through. Yeah, um, we shouldn't have. You know, the whole industry was saying we were dead. Um, I remember there was one. I <laughs> I still give him shit for it. Uh, Pactor on uh, what's his face's show. They, they uh, I think it was Keeley asked him, "Okay, what do you think about this new Borderlands thing?" And and, and Pactor goes, "Oh, it's being sent to die." Like, if you want an RPG, Dragon Age comes out a month before. If you want a shooter, Call of Duty comes out a month later. It, it's, no, it's dead. It's, you're, forget it. And later, I'm like, yeah, you never heard of Reese's Peanut Butter Cup? Did you talk to Michael about that? Yeah, I, get, I always bust his shit about it. It's, that's funny. Well, he doesn't hold back, right? Which is great. Yeah. I, that's what I love about you know, Michael. You know, he's, he's never been afraid to make the call, but it's like most things, you know. You only need to hit, like, you only remember the hits. You don't remember the misses yeah. <laughs> when you're making calls like that. It's like magic mentalism. Well, let's, let's, talk, let's talk about the misses. I think that's an important part yeah, of all of is. our yeah. all of our. Uh, dev histories is because all of us have made games that people have already forgotten because they weren't successful or have been canceled in mid-flight. Now, what what have you learned from the games that didn't do well? Oh, man. Gearbox? I learned more from the failures and the successes, frankly. When, you, when, you, when it works, you think that you're good. And even your bad decisions become validated, which is like the worst, <laughs> the worst result possible. No, I mean, I, the failures are where we really learn. Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the specific lessons you can remember applying from, say, uh, a game that didn't do well? Um, so one of the things that I, pro I will do my best to never let happen again, we did this deal with, um, it was after 
is after Brothers in Arms came out, and Brothers in Arms was a big hit, and we and it was really successful, and it got like great critical acclaim and sales, which is like, oh, it's a dream scenario. And so I thought, okay, here's the moment. I'm going to put a bunch of boats in the water right now because this you can't count on these moments happening. So we're going to obviously do more Brothers in Arms. We're going to milk that. Uh, and we had we had more to do because like you know it was a great game, but you know how it is. You're always compromising along the way. So it's like okay, now that we've got credibility, we can we can do more with it. Yeah. And love the chance to do more with Brothers in Arms. And we had a quick out. And we did it. We did a full sequel. But um, the other boats I put in the water were okay. Let's invent another original IP. We have credibility now. We proved it. We can do this. And that's what led to Borderlands. But there was this other part of our business that was nice and kind of safe. And that was about working with other people's IP and whether it's a licensed IP or, you know, um, expanding on somebody, some other work before, you know, from porting Tony Hawk to doing the original James Bond game to, you know, the expansions we did with Half-Life. And so I'm like, okay, let, what, what will it be? So we put, it was one of my partners, Brian, who like, okay, here's, here's all the things I love. And cause he wanted to direct this game. And the number one thing on his list was aliens. And, uh, so, and you know, that's one of the other things I like to do is like people on the team, when they, when awesome people get fired up about a thing, I want to figure out a way to give, like have, let them have that. Right. So, so Brian, he, he, this is, this is like a dream of his. So we, 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 we found out, okay, there's this relationship between Sega and Fox. So Sega's going to have to be the publisher. And I talked with those guys and we, we worked out a deal and we hadn't even signed the deal yet. Like it was, it was long form was, it was imminent. Everybody's, but it wasn't even like the ink wasn't even dry and they couldn't help themselves. Like Fox and Sega, Fox was so excited. They wanted to like let the, their world know that their licensing business was good. And Sega was really excited to let the world know that, hey, they're making, you know, they're trying to get into bigger AAA stuff and make some real bets. So, like, the contract wasn't even signed yet, and they announced this deal. And the second you hear Gearbox and Aliens and Unreal Engine, like, everybody already designed the game in their own head. <laughs> And like, so we, there was no hope oh, for man. us. With That's so unusual because we yeah. all tend to wait to announce I, anything, right? I mean, like I didn't wow. announce Borderlands 3 until like it was beta. <laughs> like, yeah. like, like we're, and, I, like, I, and it sucks because I know there's people like there's a lot of people we, we, we're working on another Brothers in Arms game, but I'm not saying shit until we have it. Right. You know, and there's, we have fans that really love that and they're just they're just going to have to suffer. But it was it was doomed, like I think from from that from the start and and then and then there was a million problems along the way i mean it was really difficult um uh and you know i think initially we started with a budget of 10 million dollars and of course we're immediately competing with call of duty as an action shooter you know that they're, they're north of 50 and so in the the budget i think grew to like 17 million dollars and then and sega was cool with that and then we had Borderlands just worked. So we're good. And I'm like, you know what? It's important that we make this game great. So we invested, I think, all in $17 million of Gearbox money. 
into this alien's product. We never saw a dime. We never yeah. saw, like, it was just, you just flushed that money down the toilet. And not only did that, but, like, there were a lot of people that were really unhappy with that game. Yeah. And it's tough, too, because I, I got too close to it. You know, Brian was, Brian's great, and he, he was he was neck deep in it, but I, but I also helped out. And, and I, so I wasn't really objective. I thought the game was pretty good. I thought, I mean, I didn't think it was a 10, but I thought it was like a seven, which would have been fine commercially. But the problem was we, the other problem that, that it had, and here's the other thing I was, there might've been some language gap with, with Sega. I don't know, but I tried to tell him. So we had, you know, Borderlands was a hit and then it went into it went into, there was some complication I probably shouldn't even talk about that was all on, not us. It was all on the publisher side. So that game went into like freeze mode for probably 18 months. Nobody even knew about that. But, you know, we did Borderlands 2. It launched in 2012. It launched in the holiday season and, and just like, and it's like, you know, nines and nine out of tens and 10 out of tens across I remember. the board. Yeah. And just killing it. Yeah. So this is where we're at. And I, you know, I tried to convince Sega, look, man. You want at least give us at least a six month gap. First of all, like we need all these awesome people to help. Let's like give us a little time. Also, like you want as much time as possible, frankly, like the expectation is here and like we're, this is probably going to be a seven out of 10. And, um, and also now we have all these people that think that we're the Borderlands guys. And if they try to get this other game thinking it's going to be anything like Borderlands games, like it's not. So we had like a million expectation gap problems and you know, the game, the game was always, unfortunately there were some people that really liked it, but it was all over the place. And I think I w I should have been a little, I should have been a little tougher with Sega on that. Hmm. And I could have, I mean, at the end of the day, we control the product. We could have just, it just wasn't ready to ship. But we're professionals, and it was it was like really important. Nope, it's got to ship in February, and that was only like four months after Borderlands Two, which isn't really enough time Not at all to move, especially when a game is doing really well. Yeah, right, because it stays in the PR and cycle. And yeah, and we're post launch. But it's just even think about it from the development point of view. Like if I want to get all my landing team. Mm -hmm. Over like I'm not at that point I wasn't 500 people yet you know um, it's the same team that did all the landing and you know post engineering and and cert and all that stuff and local like that's the same team from one project to the next and it's just not it's just not enough time <laughs> like you know, and when you think about back then especially when physical retail is everything like that game has to you know, be done and certified and off to manufacturing two months before the shelf date, which, you know, this is a shelf date of mid February Christmas. Like we're, we're, we're RTM before Christmas. Like, yeah. It, it, so that was a really tough thing. And I should have, I should have been a little more assertive there and I should have maybe, I just was trying to be a good partner. And I, you know, I, it was, it would have been a lie to say that it was impossible. Like we, we're professionals, we can do it. And so I represented that sincerely and honestly. And Sega, I think they made a mistake that a lot of, a lot of suits make. Mm -hmm. Where in their minds, the product is the same quality. This is the product. And so now what I have to optimize for is what's my best like marketing or sales window. And it's, but it's not the same product. It's not the same product. So That's, they're setting expectations that just can't be met. Yeah. Right? And, 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 but you know, look, we, we have a lot, we have a lot to you know, I, for me, the lessons are don't announce before you know what you have. Um, give it plenty of time to polish and finish. And then I think the biggest lesson of all is 
that particular property, the expectations are everywhere. We made a game that was trying to be like a video game successor to the movie Aliens. Mm -hmm. And so all the people that like Alien for the suspense horror kind of game were just evil. Like we don't get it and we're the worst people in the world. And we've seen that door swing both ways, uh, especially with that property. It's really weird. So you've got to, if you can't control the, if you can't at least understand or have a, have a, a plan that controls the expectation, the, the full field of expectations, you you might get roasted. Yeah. And we just weren't good enough or smart enough to come up with an answer that could address that wide of an expectation. Our answer was too narrow. And, um, you know, and so, yeah, so that was a tough one. So I think the other thing too is, and I should have learned this, I'm an asshole because I should have learned this lesson working with the, the MGM and the Dan Jack people on the James Bond stuff because that's a whole different thing. Don't work on movie licenses. <laughs> Just don't do it. Just don't do it. I mean, you got like, unless you have like, they're just, they just can't tell you anything. Yeah. But the second there's any approvals involved or there's any authority involved, they're, you're just going to get screwed. There's just, and, and that, that led to probably more of the pain on that than anything else. And that will always be like behind, no one will ever hear those stories, yeah. but you know. And the James Bond one had a few of those too. Well, it's tough when you are you you have two parents, right, of a of a game, right? Yeah. And, and there has to be some like you were saying at the very beginning. If you have a situation where it's not clear that uh, somebody's in charge, right, yeah. and making the final calls, especially the final creative calls, and it's not the developers, then it's got problems. Things yeah. can go off. Yeah, the rails decision making is real, and and if in in it, it doesn't, there is no who's right or who's wrong. It's like. It's just you need a consistent yeah. kind of decision-making pipeline because then you can trust that the goals at least will probably be consistent. Yeah. That's when, you know, the, the thing I like to say, I use this analogy with Gearbox a lot. I've been using it since we founded the company where it's like, hey, you know, the, you remember those rusty merry-go-rounds we had in the schoolyards? They're like the, the spin around, you know, and you can put a bunch of kids on there and try to get it going. And it takes some effort. But if you push and, you know, really work at it, you can get that thing moving a little bit. And once it's moving, it's easier to keep it going. And, you know, when you get it going fast enough, we can throw their hands up and go, wee. But, you know, if you've got somebody, like, dragging their feet over the other edge or pushing it in the opposite direction, it's not going to – it's not – it's going to be impossible to move. And it's – it's or hard to move or there's friction added and it just sucks. And here's the secret of the merry-go-round. It does not matter whether it spins clockwise or counterclockwise. It doesn't it – ma what matters is it's spinning fast. Yeah. And it's spinning good. So let's – can we just all spin this thing in the same direction? And it will be great for everybody. Um that's a, that's a, I love that analogy. It's perfect. Yeah. I, I've been using that one for 22 years. <laughs> so, well, it, it makes me think about your sort of recent foray into publishing, mm -hmm. right? Given that you've had some relationships with publishers that have been pretty, pretty informative and you have a strong philosophy of, you know, when it comes to how to develop games, was that useful in starting up your publishing business? Yeah. Um, the biggest thing was, um, the biggest reason why we started the, um, the publishing business, though, was because of my naivete. Um, when do you remember when TH, THQ went down yeah. and then all mm -hmm. the property was auctioned off? Yeah. Um, the Nordic guys, our new partners, Embracer, they, they they acquired all the they acquired THQ brand and most of the catalog. We acquired one thing: we got Homeworld. 
and I love Homeworld. Which is a great IP. It's really great. It's, yeah. It was the highest ranked of all the things in the entire catalog. And Homeworld launched in 1999. And when I was, remember when I was doing E3 with Half-Life Opposing Force? Yeah. Right next to me was, <laughs> was Alex yeah. and Homeworld. And we toured together. And we did it again when we were doing more Half-Life stuff. And they did Homeworld too. So, like, there, there was a weird kind of, like... It was just in my head a little more, and 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 my partner Brian, uh, probably even more than me, because um, he's the art nerd, and he he you know he really wanted, uh, and so we're like you know what maybe so you know I talked to Alex Garden about it and some of the other guys and we're like you have my full blessing, do it and I'm like okay so we did it and my plan was we're gonna acquire the IP, and we can revitalize the back catalog, and because nobody could play the back catalog, nobody had attended to it in like a decade, and we can make new Homeworld games. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I thought, and this is great. It's no, it's, it's a great property. Great. There's clearly a positive business here. Uh, I'll just take this around all the publishers I know and somebody will, you know, we'll just, you know, figure out who the right partner is and we'll do a game. And, you know, back, back then, and in fact, most of my career, it, money wasn't the problem because you'd find a publishing partner and they would finance it. It's like an interest-free loan. Yeah, you know, it's the it's be it was beautiful. And I had to work with those guys anyway because I had no access to the platforms. I'm not. I don't have a publishing licensing agreement with Xbox or with PlayStation or with Nintendo. I don't have a direct relationship to sell to Best Buy or you know, back in the early days, CompUSA or mm -hmm. Target or you know, any of those guys. And and so I had to work with a publisher anyway. They're going to get their cut. And they're going to de-risk me because they 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 want to be the ones to sign my next game. So this is great. So I'm like, I'll take Homeworld around. We'll find the right partner. We'll do the best deal we can, and and then we'll do it. And I, and as I was shopping it, all these guys had the same kind of reaction, which is like, yeah, that's pretty cool. But here's the thing: we're all about smaller, bigger, fewer, bigger bets. And you know what we want from you, Randy? We don't want like Homeworld. Like, give us your big next AAA thing, right? And you know what? I'll tell you what. If you do the big next AAA thing with us, we'll do Homeworld for you. And I'm like, you don't care. Like, this is beautiful. This is this incredible thing. Why does everything like? Why can't why can't this just be in, like good in and of itself? And they and and I couldn't get anybody to see it or do it. So, you know, fortunately, it, by that point, we had done all the not all, but mo pretty much all of and most of the creative marketing for like Brothers in Arms and for Borderlands. And, and you know, 2K is a great partner for Borderlands and they kill it in operational marketing. They've actually built out marketing a lot where they're doing more creative marketing today than they did back then, which is really cool. But back then we were kind of doing all the creative marketing and, and they were doing all the operational. So we felt like, well, marketing's a big part of this. We're going to do a PC only version of Homeworld. That's, you know, I don't need a I don't need a publishing licensing agreement to make a PC game. I don't have to, you know, convince Sony or Microsoft to let me on their platform. And uh, so it's really just about distribution. And so, you know, we could probably find a way like I, GameStop's down the street. Uh, I, I was the guy doing the road shows, talking to Walmart and Best Buy. I can I have their cards. I can call them up. We could probably do this. And marketing is probably the biggest thing, right? And we did the creative. So the operational is just, it's just a checkbook, right? <laughs> you know, it's just buying the ad space and like, let's just try this, you know? And Steve Gibson, who was at Gearbox at the time, kind of doing the marketing stuff, he was gung-ho. He's like, yeah, I'm totally, let's figure this out. I can totally do this. I'm like, yeah, you can totally do this. <laughs> like, let's do it. So we did it. 
And it was a mess and everything went wrong. And like, we had no idea what we we're doing and we had to learn along the way. And, you know, there's a million lessons you don't even know you had to learn until after you're suffering from the fact that you didn't know them. <laughs> but it turned out, you know, we, we did a remaster of Homeworld. We spent the money on the development. We got all the right people involved, did a really freaking good job on the game. And then we tried to do the best job we can on the publishing and we did a pretty good job and it made a lot of money. I mean, like you, like, and it's and like, we didn't, we're not splitting it with anybody. It's like, what the hell's going on here? And it was really fun. And we built all this expertise. So we're like, I think we're a publisher now. Okay. Let's do, let's do a couple more things. And then we decided, you know, we've got some things in the pipeline. I, let's go ahead and let's go talk to the first parties and see if, if, if they'll let us have a license, a publishing, a PLA. And we talked to them, we showed them our roadmap and they're like, yeah, okay. And so we did deals with them. I mean, it took us like a year and a half, but that's fast. If, yeah. Right. For a PLA. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, there was a lot of ground covered by, and we, unfortunately we also had a lot of relationships with all these guys because we've been around for so long. You know, it's like if we were out of nowhere, I think it'd have been harder, but, yeah. um, but it took us about a year and a half to get all our PLAs done. I'm yeah. saying it's fast to start a publisher and oh, actually yeah. be yeah. Work, uh, publishing on consoles and PCs yeah. and, and, and successful. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. We did. We did. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, we, we hired some, we got some of the great people to join our team. Um, so we got direct relationships with the North American retailers, which like, there's a very small club of people that have a direct relationship with Walmart, a direct relationship with GameStop and GameStop, you know, when they were going through that thing, they even started consolidating and, um, I remember, you know, I sat down with those guys. I'm like, it's really important to us that we maintain because we're going, you know, we're going up and we're we're gonna we're gonna be a bigger pipeline and more and more part, part important part of your business. And I guarantee you in a few years, we're gonna be a bigger part of your revenue than other publishers that you currently have that you're you have direct relationships. Let's keep that direct relationship. We already had a direct relationship, they were trying to consolidate us. Yeah. Uh and we 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 earned it and we kept it. And uh yeah, and, and we're jamming, you know, and holy crap. We just launched last year for, um, I mean, Godfall on the PlayStation 5, literally the first game certified on the PlayStation 5 and the first game manufactured. Like, that's weird. Like, we are literally the newest kids on the block and we, we were first out of the gate with the product. And it's pretty good. It's fun. It's cool. Those guys did. Some, I love that developer. Those guys did some really cool stuff, and they've got they got big plans. So I, I hope they like how well we did for them. And I and I told Steve. I said two things to Steve. I said, okay, um, we're going to finance this. We're going to we're going to make we're going to do this. But here's t two rules. One, we have to be the most developer friendly publisher mm -hmm. on the planet. We have to be the publisher to others that we wished always existed to us. And two, if you ever call me into a meeting where we have to deal with the fact that a truck went off the road somewhere and we lost some boxes or anything logistics, I'm burning it all down. We're shutting it all down because that's not why I'm in this business. I'm here to make video games. I'm yeah. here to entertain people. There's people I'm sure that love solving those problems. I'm not one of them. Get the people you need. I'm not dealing with logistics. That's a good rule. Well, <laughs> those are the two rules. Well, let me ask you about your, you know, what you guys do different, given that you are you have so much experience in development world and having sat on the other side of the table. What are the, what name, tell me three things that you do that you, uh, you don't believe traditional publishers would ever do. Yeah. Um, okay. First is on business model. Um, we let that we don't let, we beg the developer to set the terms. Hmm. Here's the model. Here's it's transparent. Where do you want to land? Yeah. Like who's taking what risk? We, like a lot of our deals, 70% in favor of the developer. 
Now they're probably funding. Yeah. A significant yeah. So, portion yeah. There's, they're funding there. Yeah. But like, like if you talk about a game like risk of rain two, it's an indie team. Yeah. You so know? it's a small budget and yeah. 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 They're, they're, they're killing it. They're, cool. Those guys are doing great and we're, we're making time like a little bit, but you know, it's, it justifies the, the risk, but um, and we're committing, you know, we commit, we make a marketing commitment yeah. and you know, they see exactly how, that. And that's the other part, total transparency, mm-hmm. total transparency. You can see everything, all, all the, all the numbers, everything that's happening in real time and make decisions with, uh, you know, if, and if you want to do it, something different, we'll go your way. Um, the other thing I think is we're not trying to capture anybody, you know, uh, throughout my entire existence as a developer, they, they want me to only do the thing I'm doing for them or they want to acquire me, you know, and they don't, they don't want to acquire what I'm, what's possible. They just want to lock down what they're risking on. You know what I mean? Yeah. So when they talk about acquisition, it's not about, and that's what I think, I don't know a lot, but this is what I think is beautiful about what you did with Sony because I think they're empowering what you're capable of. It's a great relationship. I, and I think yeah. like you guys are going to do some cool shit and I can't, oh my God, I can't wait. But, um, and I, that's, that's, that's the nature of a good kind yeah. of thing. But a lot of the stuff that, you know, was coming at me, was different. You mm-hmm. know, it was really about controlling and like, you know, like, like Ubisoft was like, I don't want to, you know, I, I think Eve's brilliant, but like, you'd like screamed at me because I was doing something other than brothers in arms. Like you couldn't. And like the best version of that is no fuel me. Like I'm going to create, I can't help myself. And everyone at Gearbox, we're just going to make stuff. (laughs) Give us as much fuel and, and we'll be, we'll be with you and you can enjoy all the benefits of whatever the value is that we create. We just want to make cool stuff and entertain it. Like my metrics for success are how many people can we reach and to what extent can we gratify them? And, and it's a product. It's not like a sum, you know? So there's things we do or maybe we don't reach as many, but it's like, it's really what they want. Yeah. And it's really gratifying to them. Or it's like, you know, the, the best is what reaches a lot of people and it's super gratifying, but you know, we can, it, it, it's, it's, it's a product of those two ideas. And anyway, the, the, I don't know, I don't know where it's going. Well, we're talking <laughs> about what you do that's different yeah, as a publisher. So, so we don't, you know, like we don't start the conversation assuming that we're going to own IP if we're taking risk. You know what I mean? Like we assume we're not. Yeah. This is this is the the creator's stuff, mm-hmm. not ours. And like we're open to, and even more open now. I think that I think that we're you know did this merger with the Embracer Group where if if you know because there's there's some things that people don't want to do when they're especially some of the smaller developers. There's infrastructure and you know it's like you know some of them might want to become part of us, but I'm not like that's not like the only way I'm gonna work with someone like there's cool we're doing some things that i have no idea if it's going to make any money or not but that's super cool and we can help yeah. we are at we are the right guys to help and we'll you know we'll try to do it in a way where um you know we're not, we're not trying to hurt ourselves and we definitely don't want any of our development partners to get hurt but it's not it's like there's certain things where it's like we are the guys for that and and it's it's also like bespoke too so like for example with um the tiny build guys you know those guys? No. Alex, Russian dude. Um, they do some cool games. Um, uh, they actually, I think they just went public uh, in Russia. Yeah. And um, and I think his market cap's like $500 million now in the overnight. So, that, so they, they did this game called Hello Neighbor. And they're, they're, t- they're, they're an independent publisher. They typically just publish digitally. This Hello Neighbor game 
like it looked like like it's cool and there was a retail opportunity like and they had no access to retail and so you know we talked to alex and he's like all right let's try it and it is killed and it's like total like we didn't need the whole like worldwide rights we don't we don't even have any touch on digital all we're doing is helping them have a physical box you know we do a deal with the right product where they just want a cool collector's edition and all we're doing is the collector's edition because that's really fun stuff. If the product merits it and it, you know, it, it, it's worthy, like it can be a bespoke deal. It's not, and and what it's really because it's driven by the our mission is to entertain. It's not like we don't have some strategy we've map, mapped out that's about okay how to get to a certain market cap. I don't, I don't even know what, how those guys think, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, okay, we just, we just want to make cool stuff and yeah. entertain people. And, and yeah, you want, you have to make more than you spend. Cause if you spend more than you make the dream ends, that's the fundamental thing about how we survive as a business. But if that's, as long as that's true, then we should be doing this because somebody wants this entertainment or this entertainment deserves to, you know, get out there and it can reach people and entertaining the world is what it's all about. That's literally the point. It's the entire reason why we get to exist. It's the into- it's the only reason why we get to exist, and it's it's meaningful. You know, this is especially now. Holy crap, life is a mess. And I mean, there's a lot of cool things people do. Like I'm great. Like look at this building's amazing. The civil engineers that were involved and like that's a cool pursuit. And I like that. You know, they can design things in a way to make this more convenient for us, and that. You know, I'm glad that there's doctors and people in medical science figuring out things like vaccines so we can live longer and healthier lives. I'm thankful for people in security and law enforcement and even um, military that try to help us keep be more secure and safe. I'm grateful. I'm not, never for the bad ones, but for the best amongst us, for even even politicians that are trying to be, help us be organized and figure out how to you know govern. Um, uh, and it, you know, all these things are noble. But the, but what what I think matters the reason why life is worth living at all the reason why we even care about whether to being safe and secure or even having a life is because we can experience joy and happiness if everything that we do is motivated by that hope that we can feel joy and we can feel pleasure and we can feel happiness and if you take that away if that if that if there was no chance of that or if that didn't exist who gives a crap about how long we live or like none of that would matter at all that's why suicides literally happen is because that, that, that hope and confidence and the ability to experience joy and happiness goes for some people. And as a species, it's precious that we figure out better and better how to synthesize and create experiences of joy and happiness for ourselves and for each other. And, you know, I didn't build this world where we commoditize, but it's kind of neat that we can commoditize the creation of joy and happiness because then people like you and me can actually afford to dedicate our lives to the creation of, of entertainment for other people. And that's super cool. Like that's a, that's a dream. <laughs> I agree. And, uh, and it's, it has been awesome hearing how you have pursued that dream. And, and oh, I, I feel like I'll never get there. <laughs> like <laughs> it's like endless pursuit. <laughs> no, but that's a, that's a wonderful way to, I think, uh, and a, a, a fantastic conversation. Okay, I appreciate <laughs> I appreciate the positive, you know, your positivity and and sharing so much about the history. Oh yeah, box. I think that's thanks for is, you sh- thanks for doing this because like we're all losing our history. Yeah, in so many ways, the stories of our experiences and even our content, and that's increasingly becoming true in this digital world. 
um, or so we, we have to do more to preserve our history and preserve because there's value to it. And there's people that are going to come after us. They're going to suffer through all the crap we suffered through. Why? And maybe we can save some of them from some of it if they can just dig a little bit into the, some of the messes we've made. And maybe I they don't have to make the same messes themselves. Totally agree. I wish, <laughs> I mean, that is that is the difference now in this industry. One of the differences is that when when we you and I were starting, uh, we, we didn't have an opportunity to hear about the mistakes that others had made so we could avoid None. making <laughs> those same mistakes. And so today, I think, and in, in all that you've shared, I think, I hope... There are up and coming developers who are listening and saying, awesome. Well, it Thank is certain you. that the game developers are, of tomorrow are going to just destroy us. They're going to yeah, They're the best game developer in the world 10 years from now is someone we don't even know yet. And I can't wait to play their content. Me too. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Randy. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for doing this. Thank you for joining us for the Game Maker's Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts, and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org.